on a day like today, on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, as Pastor Dave has already mentioned, we remind ourselves as of the value and dignity and worth of every single human being. Regardless of the circumstances of their conception, gender, ethnicity, mental capacity, or any other variables, every life matters. And the Christian worldview is actually what informs the reason why every life matters. See, we are not the result of some random chance, but we are made in the image of God. And in fact, our beliefs and identity document, if you want to know what we believe as a church, you can check this out online or find a uh, page that looks um, just like this. Our beliefs and identity document has a whole statement on the affirmation of life from conception to natural Death. We believe in the value of every person. We are pro-life here at Grace. We are also pro-family. We desire healthy families because we believe that the family is God's good design and institution for human flourishing. We believe that God has designed a, a family, a mom and a dad, a stable home so that individuals, each and every life might succeed, grow, mature in every way that God has for us. See, uh, an individual disconnected from a family is an orphan. And while we celebrate life, we are also discouraged or saddened by that life disconnected from a family. That grieves us. So <clears throat> on a day like today, we celebrate life, but we also celebrate family and we encourage those who choose family, especially those who labor in the, the challenging world of foster care. For those who spend of their own resources or of their own emotions and adoption, we are grateful for you. And for centuries, we join with the centuries of the Christian tradition of valuing life and choosing family. In the first century, they rescued uh, babies, especially girls, from, uh, from trash heaps and gutters. And today, in the 21st century, we work to, to value and encourage every human being. Similarly, let's make some connections here. The Great Commission is about new life, new conversions, spiritual rebirth. You must be born again to be spiritual children of God. We celebrate conversions. Every conversion is a miracle of God to work change, salvation in somebody's life. And we celebrate new children of God who trust in Christ alone. And yet, being a spiritual child of God on its own, on his or her own, is not exactly what God has designed. What if the Great Commission to make disciples does not just include new conversions, but churches? What if the Great Commission call to make disciples of all nations includes healthy spiritual families where these disciples can grow, mature, and thrive? See, last week in this mini-series on the Great Commission, in these two candidating sermons, I want to remind us of some of the most central themes of the Bible and God's mission for the church Somebody asked me or told me uh, after last week's like, you're being a little bit more visionary than uh, most candidates would be. And yes, I am. And I said I liked Hamilton, so I'm taking my shot here. 
But we're asking ourselves, what are we here for? What's the mission? And the answer is this. We exist to make disciples and be disciples. Our, our mission statement as a church says that Grace Players Church exists to honor God by multiplying devoted followers of Jesus. That's conversion. Through worship, community, training, and witness. That's also part of being a disciple and being a healthy church. So at this point, I'd ask you to turn again in your Bibles to Matthew 28. If you don't have a Bible, one of our hosts will gladly provide one for you. Just reach your hand up and grab a Bible. We want you to see and hold the Word of God in your hand. So raise your hand there. You can find on those Bibles being passed out uh, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, on page 811, I believe. If you're new to looking at a Bible... The large numbers are chapter numbers and the small numbers are verse numbers. So we're in Matthew in the New Testament, chapter 28. We're going to begin reading in verse 16. So as you receive those Bibles and turn there, go ahead and stand with me in honor of God's word. Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's word. You may be seated. So remember, last week I said we're going to treat this text, this Great Commission, as if we're squeeze, uh, squeezing out all the water in a sponge. We're, we're trying to see as much truth and application from these few verses as possible. And since this is a two-part message, we're in part two today, I must go back a little bit and review some from part one before jumping into just new information. So this is a little bit less like a Netflix binge where you just go immediately to the, the next episode. Instead, it's kind of like the old days when we had to watch something and just wait every Sunday night or Monday night or whatever. And in the first few minutes would be previously from last week. This is a little bit of previously from last week. So if you're following on your worship program, you'll see the review there. And our main point from last week was under the authority of Christ. Notice what's what... Jesus starts this great commission. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth, that's all, has been given to me. So under the authority of Christ, we make disciples through bold witness. Remember, Jesus is the one with authority because he is God in the flesh. He has, is the one who has the right to tell his followers what to do. And he says, the goal of the great commission is to make disciples of all nations. He has all authority, therefore all nations need to respond as disciples of Christ. Remember last week I said that to be a disciple is to relate to Jesus as pupil to teacher. D.A. Carson writes that disciples are those who hear, understand, and obey Jesus' teaching. The disciples are those who hear, understand, and obey Jesus' teaching. Remember Jesus in uh, Matthew 11, verse 28 says, Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Take my, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. See, to be a disciple of Jesus is to take his yoke, to learn from him, to obey him, and to trust in him. And there's a process of becoming and being a disciple. 
Jesus says in Matthew 28, he says, be baptized, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the first part of this process. Baptism, remember, is the sign of Christian conversion. The true God is one God who exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity. So it makes logical sense, theological sense even, that the sign of Christian conversion would be a Trinitarian or triune sign. We baptize into the triune name, the true God. We come to the Father through faith and trust, repentance, in light of the finished work of Jesus Christ, the Son on the cross, all by the power of his Holy Spirit. So when people convert through faith, they symbolize that faith through being baptized. And we need to therefore share that good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ for sinners. We must proclaim that to the nations. Now, if you're not convinced on, God's, on the gospel call to the nations as being one of the primary uh, threads throughout the scriptures, if you're not yet convinced just on, based on Matthew 28 yet, let me read for you Luke 24. Luke 24, verse 44, this is after Jesus' death and resurrection. He appears to his disciples and he says this, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Imagine that light turning on. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. Jesus says that, that the scriptures are fulfilled in his life in his death, in his resur resurrection, and then also in the gospel call, proclaiming that good news to the nations. The good news of the gospel, forgiveness of sins, is meant for every tribe and nation. And this telling, remember, involves everybody. Telling of the gospel is not a role reserved for one person, but it is for everyone who has trusted Christ. Max Stiles in his book, Evangelism, talks so wonderfully about an evangelistic culture in a church is not revealed merely in evangelistic programs, but in evangelistic people. An evangelistic culture is not revealed merely in evangelistic programs, but evangelistic people. See, evangelistic people are those who don't, we don't have to wait to share the gospel until it fits some perfect niche or program in our church. No. We are all equipped to share the gospel, every member in their own sphere of relationships, in their workplace, in their home, in their neighborhood. All of us are scattered as witnesses. And we must be those who take that gospel call to neighborhoods and to the nations. What would it look like if every one of us here at Grace embraced our role and identity as a witness of Jesus Christ? One who bears the facts, tells the facts, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. David Platt has so wonderfully said, every saved person this side of heaven owes the gospel to every lost person this side of hell. We all need to embrace that life as a witness.
So there's a priority here in the Great Commission of the gospel going out to people who have never heard, to nations who have no witness to it. We must proclaim. But the Great Commission does not stop at conversion. Like life does not stop just at birth. There's a second part of this process. Notice that in Matthew 28, he says, baptize them, convert. But then in verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. There's an expectation in the Great Commission that those converts, those who trust in Jesus, would then be transformed and obey. And what I want to advocate today is that you can't do that. You can't observe all that Jesus has commanded without a local church. Now you might say, Hess, I was following with you up until now. But I want to describe today, I want to show today, theologically and through the book of Acts, how a local church, how churches are central to the Great Commission. So our main idea today, you can see it on the, uh, on the bottom of your worship program, is that with the presence of Christ, we live as disciples in healthy churches. With the presence of Christ, we live as disciples in healthy churches. Churches, just like we wouldn't expect or we expect a newborn baby to be connected to a real family with a mom and a dad for the greatest opportunity for human flourishing and success maturity. Similarly, a new convert to Christianity, a new convert to Christ, the greatest opportunity for maturity, growth and long term transformation is through connection to a spiritual family, a local church. So today, we're going to theologically look at why healthy churches are part of the Great Commission. We'll consider some ways of application for us, and then we'll finally remind ourselves the presence of Christ to enable this. So in your worship program, that fill in the blank, number one, healthy churches are God's disciple-making strategy. Healthy churches are God's disciple-making strategy. Trying to make sense of a disciple of Jesus without the local church is like trying to make sense of a puzzle that's been just, the box has been poured out onto the table and we we don't put it together, but we say, look at my beautiful puzzle. I'm I'm glad one person thought that was funny. Thank you. (laughs) I don't mean to embarrass you, but thanks. But, but, But that's not the expectation of the New Testament. The New Testament is not like that puzzle that's been poured out and not put together. The book of Acts demonstrates the centrality of the church in the application of the Great Commission. You could in fact say that the the book of Acts is the Great Commission applied. Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert in their wonderful book called What is the Mission of the Church say this, if everything in Matthew culminates in the Great Commission, everything in Acts flows through it. If everything in Matthew culminates in the Great Commission, everything in Acts then flows from it. Acts 1 verse 8 serves as the thesis statement to the book of Acts when it says, but you, this is Jesus speaking, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So here again, we see the priority of gospel proclamation, being witnesses and a witness, a good witness gives testimony to reality, gives testimony to the facts about Jesus. Which, for another day, remember, Christianity is no myth. These witnesses of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus were to do nothing other than give witness, testimony, to what they saw. They were witnesses of these things. 
Now, last week, we defined a disciple as one who obeys or hears, understands and obeys Jesus' teaching. But we also need today to define what we mean by a church. Because with those witnesses, they, were, they did not stop merely at, at seeing con, some conversions. They didn't see some conversions and then just go about. New birth? Great. We're going to leave you in the nursery. No. They, they gave testimony to Jesus and then they taught them to obey, which resulted in a local church. So we see this term church used throughout the New Testament in a couple of different ways. The first is that of the universal church. We know that. The universal church. Theologian Greg Allison defines the universal church this way. He says, it's the people of God who have been saved through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and have been incorporated into his body through baptism with the Spirit. So it's the new covenant people of God who have trusted in Jesus alone by faith and incorporated into his body through baptism with the Holy Spirit. And that's something that happens simultaneously with conversion. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is not something that we await later. It happens immediately when someone's converted and they're placed into the family of God, the universal church. We see this throughout the New Testament, the way the, the word church is used. In Matthew 16, Jesus says, I, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Ephesians 5 talks about the church as the bride of Christ, that he loved and gave himself up for his church. And we know based on the context that that refers to a broader group of people than just one congregation. It is the universal church, those who have trusted in Christ by faith. But the universal church is manifested, made known through local churches. So here's our definition for a local church. A local church is a group or gathering of Christ followers committed to his commands, including baptism and communion, the ordinances, and committed to one another, all under the authority of God's word. It is led by godly elders for worship, holiness, and mission. A local church is a group or gathering of Christ followers committed to his commands, including baptism and communion, and committed to one another all under the authority of God's word. It is led by godly elders for worship, holiness, and mission. Now, that, that doesn't describe all that a church does or can do, but it does describe a little bit about what a church is, who a church is, and the primary priorities for local churches. It's a group of Christians that are covenanted they, together. There's a unique relationship that they commit to having with one another. It's under the authority of God's word, not around it or divide it or just part of it, but it's under the authority of God's word and it's guided by elders for the sake of holiness, for the sake of godliness, for the sake of mission, for now until the Lord returns. So, the Great Commission, it does not only lead to conversions, but it results in healthy churches. How do we see that? Next point in your worship program. Healthy churches are the fruit of evangelism. Healthy churches are the fruit of evangelism. And the, the book of Acts describes this. Throughout the book of Acts, it's clear that pioneer mission, that is proclaiming the gospel into to people and to places where it had not been named, pioneer mission, sharing the gospel, resulted in a healthy church. They did not even move maybe to the next town until a local church was established. We see this first in Acts chapter 2. After the miraculous day of Pentecost, 
Thousands of people trusted in Christ. They were baptized and then they began to meet together, to hear the word, to fellowship together, to care for one another, to worship together, and then to continue evangelizing as well. Later in Acts 11, those believers in Jerusalem were described as the church in Jerusalem, now a local congregation. Later on in Acts 11, we see Paul and Barnabas in the church of Antioch, another local congregation. They spent an entire year there with that congregation, teaching them. They were committed to one another as the body of Christ in that local context and area. But these believers in these places were not just left as a leaderless army. No, they were guided by local elders. See, Acts 14 describes this well in various places too. Paul and his teammates were working to establish these churches. And it says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they went to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations... We must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. See, local churches are the fruit of evangelism, which is why in Acts 14, it says they gathered the church together in Antioch. In Acts 15, Paul and Silas are strengthening the churches in Syria, in Cilicia. In Acts 20, Paul refers to the church in Ephesus, it is clear that the mission was not done until a local church was established. This is why that Paul spends two years in Ephesus seeing conversions, but also teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded them. And how does he do that? Through establishing a local church. He also spent a year and a half in Corinth doing the exact same thing. See, God does not save his people, to use an analogy I've already used, to be like a nursery full of kids just crying out. We would look at that with utter sadness and despair. No, he, he saves his people to be part of a spiritual family, be connected to one another. So healthy churches are the fruit of evangelism. And then secondly, they are also the context of our obedience. Healthy churches are the context of obedience. See, in Matthew 28, Jesus, that second part, so baptizing conversions. Secondly, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. See, making disciples and being a disciple are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Being and growing as a disciple is an aspect of the Great Commission that never ends. We are all still in process of, of acting out and fulfilling the Great Commission as we grow in godliness and maturity as disciples as well. And, and recognize, so I might say that and all of us would intuitively say, we're all still works in progress. If, you're at, if this is your first Sunday here at Grace Polaris, welcome. We're glad you're here. It's kind of a unique Sunday to be here. But... I'll just say, without embarrassment, we are not a perfect church. So if you're looking for a place and people that will disappoint you every once in a while, that won't fit all of your expectations, you're welcome here too. What a great thing for a potential pastoral candidate to say on a Sunday morning when he's trying to get a job. But in any case, all of us are still in progress. But so were all of the letters in the New Testament. Think of this. 
The church in Corinth accepted sexual sin that needed correcting and a member required discipline. The churches in Galatia embraced a false doctrine and believed that they could be perfected by the law. The church in Ephesus needed reminders to walk worthy in the unity of the gospel despite ethnic diversity. The church in Philippi experienced division among some of its female members. The church in Thessalonica was worried about those who died and would miss the resurrection. See, we are all still in the process of maturity, of being disciples in a healthy church. But we don't do that outside of a healthy church. So the mission includes new conversions, but it also includes healthy churches. So if you think that the Great Commission is just in seeing as many possible converts coming to Christ as possible, you're only getting a glimpse of it. If you think that being a church means that we shouldn't be reaching out with new opportunities and sending people to the neighborhoods and the nations, and we should just be about maturity, you're only getting a glimpse of it. It's a whole comprehensive mission. And DeYoung and Gilbert in their book summarize this wonderfully. The mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit and gathering these disciples into churches that they might worship the Lord and obey his commands now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father. See, the goal of the Great Commission is to make disciples of all nations, and that's done under the authority of Christ, through bold witness. And then with the presence of Christ, we live as disciples in healthy churches. So, invites the question, how would we describe a healthy church? See, we live in a very pragmatic world. And in our world, especially in the church world, many people would suggest just do anything possible to get them in the seats. Now, we need to say, in one sense, we need to reject that into one degree, but we also need to say, we don't want to put any more barriers than are, than are already there to the gospel. So, yes, based on context, setting, culture, generation, we might do things a little bit differently in our own city, throughout the ages, in our own fellowship. There might be some things that work out a little bit differently. However, I believe strongly that the Bible instructs several essential marks for any local church. And while it might look different based on time, place, location, these marks should mark who we are. So if you were to ever leave Grace Polaris looking for a healthy church, I hope you're looking for some of these things. Last week, they should be combined with the four points from last week. Last week we talked about that we exist for the glory of God. That we are, that we are called to speak and live out the gospel, every one of us that we should send to the neighborhoods and the nations and that we depend on the Lord through prayer. A lot of that is about outward focus and outreach. And now today we're talking about what does a healthy church look like that prioritizes those things and now these as well. Four marks of an, that are essential for a healthy church. First, healthy churches live under the authority of God's word. Healthy churches live under the authority of God's word. A church is not a church without recognizing the authority of the Bible. I've heard from many of you at times who grew up in churches where the Bible was not believed to be authoritative, inerrant, or the inspired Word of God. We believe here at Grace the Bible is God's Word. 2 Timothy 4 says, Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. We, we believe that the Bible is sufficient to save, not that the Bible itself has any, you know, that we just holding it saves us, but the Bible describes the message of salvation and it describes how we can live a transformed life. 
See, if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you're wondering what the message of the Bible, the, the essential aspects of the Bible are all about, let me tell you this. The Bible is about God. And God created everything. He created you and me, every human being in his image to be with him, to know him, to relate to him. And all things were perfect when he created Adam and Eve. But those first parents, those first human beings rebelled against God. And therefore, all of us, every human being on the planet has rebelled against God and has gone our own way, seeking our own justification, our own life, our own salvation. And therefore, we deserve and stand under God's right, wrath, and judgment to be separated from him for an eternity. But God, what the Bible says is slow to anger, who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that we were meant for, to earn all of our righteousness, to live a true human existence, but then to give of himself, to die as a perfect substitute for sinners so that all who respond in faith and repentance are given new life and are reconciled to that holy and righteous God. The Bible presents the message of salvation to save us and how to live a transformed life. So in light of that, we preach here expositionally. We preach through consecutive uh, sections of Scripture. And even when we preach topically or theologically, those are saturated with the Word of God, not just some guy's ideas. It models how we teach and preach here. So we preach the Word, pray the Word, and sing the Word in our corporate services, in our classes and groups as well. We also, part of living under the authority of the Bible, is living under the authority of a confession or statement of faith. Most of the early church heresies or controversies were not about the authority of God's word. They were all about what does the Bible say and believers disagreeing over those. So we have a clear statement of faith that doesn't have the same authority of the Bible, but is what our church believes about important doctrines of the Christian faith. Clear statements of faith provide the boundaries necessary for what we believe. So as disciples, health, we live as disciples in healthy churches, and a healthy church lives under the authority of God's word. Secondly, healthy churches are committed to ongoing transformation through the spirit. Healthy churches are committed to ongoing transformation through the spirit. See, the word of God and the spirit of God that God gives us should transform our, our hearts. Knowing the Bible and not living the Bible is inconsistent. Ephesians 2 uh, verse eight, 8 and 9 talk about how we are saved by grace alone so that no one can boast. But then verse 10 says, God has created us for good works. James says that faith without works is dead. Peter says, as he who called you is holy, you should be holy in all of your conduct. See, those who preach the word of God, read the word of God, submit to the word of God, should obey the word of God through his spirit, by his help. We should be marked by Christian virtue and love of neighbor and love for those around us. With the power of the Holy Spirit who seals, guards, convicts, and empowers, he produces fruit in our lives that evidence our transformed trust in Jesus. This means that we cannot affirm what the Bible clearly calls sin. And even in moments of public, where those things are public and unrepented of, we practice church discipline not, not to, to bring that brother or sister back, to reconcile them to a holy 
God. It means that we're all still works in progress, that we're not quite there, and that our lives are marked by continual repentance and faith. But we still want to prioritize transformation, holiness, and obedience. So we live as disciples in healthy churches. Healthy churches are committed to the ongoing transformation through the Spirit. Thirdly, healthy churches are committed to one another as the body of Christ. Healthy churches are committed to one another as the body of Christ. One common misconception of the church is that the church is a building. So we might say our church is located at the corner of Worthington, Galena, and Lazelle Road. Another common misconception is that the church is an event. I went to church today. I heard a sermon. I uh, sang some songs. And while we, we're not trying to be intentionally wrong or we're not exactly wrong as we say those kinds of things, but we need to be careful that we, that we don't miss the reality that the church is not a building. The church is not just an event. The church is a people. It's a family. Several metaphors for the church teach this, that it, we are the bride of Christ, the, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the household of God, the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 describes this so wonderfully where Paul writes, just as as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves or free, we were made to drink of one spirit. Later on in verse 27, he says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. See, a healthy church is committed to one another as the body of Christ. So, so last week I asked the question, do you really love God? The first commandment. Do you love God? But the second one we asked today, do you love your neighbor? Especially your neighbor who also is part of Grace Players Church. How do you talk about your church family? Do you talk about your church family as a groom talks and describes his bride, the bride of Christ? Or do you talk about it more like an ex-boyfriend who's looking for excuses for getting out of a relationship or how bad she is? Gossip, maligning. Are, can your church family count on you? Are you present? Do you serve with your spiritual gifts? Are you guilty of forsaking the gathering as Hebrews 10:25 rebukes? See, brothers and sisters, this is why I believe that church membership is so important. It has been important throughout the history of the church that we formalize those commitments. That we recognize that we as a people are uniquely committed to one another. That we make vows and promises to one another. That we commit to gather, to worship, to serve, to bear with, to forgive, and to love one another. See, our world is looking for unity and diversity. We love to talk about that idea. But brothers and sisters, the local church is the only place that it can actually be actualized because it's in the local church where diverse people come together through the unity of Jesus Christ. That we have confessed him alone as Lord. See, in a local church with a healthy membership, we recognize that we will love, spend time with, and fellowship together with people of which out in the world we would have no reason to even talk to. Why? Because what binds us together is not primarily hobbies, places we live, background, socioeconomic things. What binds us together more than anything else is the work of Christ on the cross and our mutual confession 
of him as Lord. We commit to one another. Another way we express that unity, that commitment together, is through celebrating communion together. See, communion is undoubtedly about the vertical relationship that we have for, for the Lord. We remember what Christ has done. But it's also, we, we can miss this horizontal element of the communion of the body of Christ. We gather in the context of something called the love feast. That love feast in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 and throughout the history of the church was the, was the context for the church to be unified together as the family. We wash one another's feet to, to in humble service to one another, confessing our sins to one another. And then we partake the bread and cup to symbolize that union with Christ in each other. We are the body of Christ. So we live as disciples in healthy churches and healthy churches are committed to one another as the body of Christ. Number four, healthy churches are guided by faithful leaders. Healthy churches are guided by faithful leaders. See, the book of Acts clarifies that leaders are essential to the church's life. The Bible speaks of elders in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 as qualified godly men who model Christian maturity, godliness, and hospitality and wisdom. They are not argumentative or quarrelsome. They are tasked with the primary responsibility of shepherding, of leading, teaching, and praying for the congregation. And, and healthy churches are marked by a plurality of elders, which what we mean by this is authority, power, is not vested in just one individual, but in the group as a whole who cares for the entire flock. For more on what we have to say regarding elders, I would encourage you again to check out our beliefs and identity document. Regarding those qualifications for elders, you'll notice in, in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 that none of those virtues are remarkable in and of themselves and really should be the expectation for every Christian. But related to elders, what we say is what should be true of every Christian must be true of its elders. Godly character matters. You could be a, a, an amazing businessman in the workplace and a terrible elder. Because godly character is what's most essential. And then for us as a congregation, we should be reminded along with Hebrews 13, where the author says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This is not to say that elders always get it right, or that they're perfect, or not open to correction. It invites, actually, participation from the congregation to give input, to share, and to, and to say what's on their minds, to give affirmation as well. But at the same time, there should be, are we a congregation that's easy to lead? Are we, are we a congregation who's willing to be led and submit to its elders? So we think about leaders in the church as well. We should also think about deacons. And deacons are tasked with the, the primary responsibility of what the word means, service. Deacons serve the church through tangible ways, practical, financial, and helps. Here at Grace, we believe the office of elder is reserved for men as qualified by Scripture, but the office of deacon is reserved for both men and women. It's open. And men and women throughout the history of the church who have tangibly cared for the needs of the congregation are an immense help to guide and lead the church. So we live as disciples in healthy churches, in healthy churches are guided by godly leaders. So we make disciples through bold witness and we live as disciples in healthy 
churches. That's a tall task. When Jesus in Matthew 28 commissions his disciples, he knew already that most of those men would not die natural deaths, but deaths of martyrs. That taking the gospel to the nations and establishing local churches for continual worship, mission, and godliness was not going to be an easy thing. So he promised them something. Not special powers in and of themselves, but his own presence. So our final concluding point today in these two messages is that Jesus enables his church through his presence. Jesus says this amazing promise in Matthew 28, the last sentence, verse 20, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, the power and ministry of presence is remarkable. We intuitively know that being by ourselves can be too difficult at times. To our children who are trying something for the first time, we might say, don't worry, I'm with you. I'm right here. As teenagers and we told our parents we were going out somewhere, they might say, well, who's going with you? You might think intuitively, there are certain places in our city I won't go by myself because we know that we need somebody else with us. Brothers and sisters, the mission to make disciples of all nations and to see them gathered into churches to obey the Lord and worship until he comes is a difficult task. But God, through his spirit, enables us. It will be costly. It will bring persecution, tribulation, and dissension. But we are necessary for the mission. But we're not alone. See, notice that he says in those, those last couple phrases that I'm with you always till the end of the age. See, in Revelation, we see this wonderful promise where God is our God and we are his people. And for all of eternity, we will behold him and we will be with the, the countless millions, billions who have trusted in Christ for all of eternity. We might be tempted to say, I'm just going to wait until then to enjoy that. But in this wonderful children's book that we have on the local church, the author says, yes, that's a wonderful promise, but why wait? Why shouldn't our local churches be a foretaste of that gathering in the heavenlies where we express our commitment to one another, our confession that Christ is Lord, and that we are about his work of making disciples of all nations? He's given us a great task. Under his authority, we make disciples. And with his presence, we live as disciples in healthy churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help there. Jesus, you have not given us a task that is impossible. It is without you. But because you've guaranteed and promised your spirit to come, enable us, and dwell us, we pray that we would about, be about that. Teach us, Lord, to love our neighbor as ourself, especially our Christian neighbor in our local church. We pray for health. We pray for new conversions. We pray more than anything that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.